for, taken after a long and severe struggle, it was closely allied with Fidini, a town of Latium, not more than five or six miles from Rome. The two cities frequently united their arms against Rome, and in one of these wars Lars Ptolemies, the king of Vi, was slain in single combat by a Cornelius Cassius, one of the military tribunes, and his arms dedicated to Jupiter. The second of the three instances in which the Spalia Opima were won B.C. 437. A few years afterward Fidini was taken and destroyed B.C. 426. And at the same time a truce was granted to the Vientines for twenty years. At the expiration of this truce the war was renewed, and the Romans resolved to subdue Vi as they had done Fidini. The siege of Vi, like that of Troy, lasted ten years and the means of its capture was almost as marvelous as the wooden horse by which Troy was taken. The waters of the Alban Lake rose to such a height as to deluge the neighboring country, and Oracle declared that Vi could not be taken until the waters of the lake found a passage to the sea. This reached the ears of the Romans, who thereupon constructed a tunnel to carry off its superfluous waters. The formation of this tunnel is said to have suggested to the Romans the means of taking Vi. M. Furius Camillus, who was appointed dictator, commenced digging a mine beneath the city, which was to have its outlet in the citadel, in the temple of Juno, the guardian deity of Vi. When the mine was finished, the attention of the inhabitants was diverted by feigned assaults against the walls. Candelers led the way into the mine at the head of a picked body of troops. As he stood beneath the temple of Juno, he heard the soothsayer declare to the king of the Vientines that whoever should complete the sacrifice he was offering would be the conqueror. Thereupon the Romans burst forth and seized the flesh of the victim, which Candelus offered up. The soldiers who guarded the walls were thus taken in the rear. The gates were thrown open, and the city soon filled with Romans. The booty was immense, and the few citizens who escaped the sword were sold as slaves. The image of Juno was carried to Rome, and installed with great pomp on Mount Aventine, where a temple was erected to her. Candelus entered Rome in a chariot drawn by four white horses. Rome had never yet seen so magnificent a triumph B.C. 396. One circumstance, which occurred during the siege of Vi, deserves notice, as the Roman soldiers were obliged to pass the whole year under arms, in order to invest the city during the winter as well as the summer. They now, for the first time, received day. Vi was a more beautiful city than Rome, and, as it was now without inhabitants, many of the Roman people wished to remove thither. At the persuasion of Candelus the project was abandoned, but the territory of Vi was divided among the plebeians. Florii was almost the only one of the Etruscan cities which had assisted Vi, and she was now exposed single-handed to the vengeance of the Romans. It is related that, when Candelus appeared before Florii, a schoolmaster of the town treacherously conducted the sons of the noblest families into the Roman camp, but that Candelus, scorning the baseness of the man, ordered his arms to be tied behind him and the boys to flog him back into the town, whereupon the inhabitants, overcome by such generosity, gave up their arms, and surrendered to the Romans B.C. 394. Candelus was one of the proudest of the patricians, and he now incurred the hatred of the plebeians by calling upon every man to a reef and a tenth of the booty taken at Vi, because he had made a vow to consecrate to Apollo a tithe of the spoil. He was accused of having appropriated the great bronze gates at Vi and was impeached by one of the tribunes, seeing that his condemnation was certain. He went into exile, praying as he left the walls that the Republic might soon have cause to regret him B.C. 491. His prayer was heard, for the Gauls had already crossed the Apennines, and next year Rome was in ashes. 
Footnote 18, the censorship was regarded as the highest dignity in the state, with the exception of the dictatorship. The duties of the censors were numerous and important. They not only took the census or the register of the citizens and their property but they also chose the members of the Senate, exercised a superintendence over the whole public and private life of the citizens, and, in addition, had the administration of the finances of the state. Footnote 19, this remarkable work, which, after the lapse of more than 2,000 years, still continues to serve the purpose for which it was originally designed, is cut through the soft volcanic tufa of which the Alban Hill is composed. The length of the tunnel is about 6,000 feet, and it is 4 feet 6 inches wide. Chapter VII. From the capture of Rome by the Gauls to the final union of the two orders. B.C. 390-367. The Gauls or Celts were in ancient times spread over the greater part of Western Europe. They inhabited Gaul and the British Isles, and had in the time of the Tarquins crossed the Alps and taken possession of northern Italy, but they now spread farther south, crossed the Apennines, and laid waste with fire and sword the provinces of central Italy. Rome fell before them, and was reduced to ashes, but the details of its capture are clearly legendary. The common story runs as follows, the Sinones, a tribe of the Gauls, led by their chief Brennus, laid siege to Clusium the powerful Etruscan city over which Lars Porsena once reigned. Such reputation had Rome gained through her conquests in Etruria, that Clusium applied to her for aid B.C. 391. The Senate sent three ambassadors, sons of the chief Pontiff, Fabius Ambustus, to warn the barbarians not to touch an ally of Rome, but the Gauls treated their message with scorn, and the ambassadors, forgetting their sacred character, fought in the Clusine ranks. One of the Fabii slew with his own hands a Gallic chieftain, and was recognized while stripping off his armor. Brennus therefore sent to Rome to demand satisfaction. The Roman people not only refused to give it, but elected the three Fabii as military tribunes for the following year. On hearing of this insult, the Gauls broke up the siege of Clusium, and hastened southward toward Rome. All the inhabitants fled before them into the towns. They pursued their course without injuring anyone crying to the guards upon the walls of the towns they pass aid. Our way lies for Rome. On the news of their approach the Roman army hurried out of the city, and on the 16th of July B.C. 300, a day ever after regarded as disastrous, they met the Gauls on the Alia, a small river which flows into the Tiber, on its left bank, about 11 miles from Rome. Brennus attacked the Romans on the flank, and threw them into confusion. A general panic seized them, they turned and fled. Some escaped across the Tiber to Vi, and a few reached Rome, but the greater number were slain by the Gauls. The loss at the Alliance had been so great that enough men were not left to guard the walls of the city. It was therefore resolved that those in the vigor of their age should withdraw to the capital, taking with them all the provisions in the city, that the priests and vestal virgins should convey the objects of religious reverence to Seir, and that the rest of the population should disperse among the neighboring towns. But the aged senators, who had been consuls or censors, seeing that their lives were no longer of any service to the state, sat down in the forum on their cruel thrones awaiting death. When the Gauls entered the city they found it desolate and deathlike. They marched on, without seeing a human being till they came to the forum. Here they beheld the aged senators sitting immovable, like beings of another world. For some time they gazed in awe at this strange sight, till at length one of the Gauls ventured to go up to M. Papiris and stroke his white beard. The old man struck him on the head with his ivory scepter, whereupon the barbarian slew him, and all the rest were massacred. The Gauls now began plundering the city, 
fires broke out in several quarters, and with the exception of a few houses on the Palatine, which the chiefs kept for their own residence, the whole city was burnt to the ground. The capital was the next object of attack. There was only one steep way leading up to it, and all the assaults of the besiegers were easily repelled. They thereupon turned the siege into a blockade, and for seven months were encamped amid the ruins of Rome, but their numbers were soon thinned by disease, for they had entered Rome in the most unhealthy time of the year, when fevers had always prevailed. The failure of provisions obliged them to ravage the neighboring countries, the people of which began to combine for defense against the marauders. Meantime the scattered Romans took courage, they collected at the eye, and here resolved to recall Candelus from banishment and appoint him dictator, in order to obtain the consent of the Senate. A daring youth, named Pontius Comenes, offered to swim across the Tiber and climb the capital. He reached the top and perceived by the enemy, obtained the approval of the Senate to the appointment of Candelus, and returned safely to Vi. But next day some Gauls observed the traces of his steps, and in the dead of night they climbed up the same way. The foremost of them had already reached the top, and noticed by the sentinels and the dogs, when the cries of some geese roused their manlies from sleep. These geese were sacred to Juno, and had been spared notwithstanding the gnawings of hunger, and the Romans were now rewarded for their piety. Emanlis thrust down the gull who had clambered up, and gave the alarm. The capital was thus saved, and down to the latest times Emanlis was honored as one of the greatest heroes of the early republic. Still no help came, and the gulls remained before the capital. The Romans suffered from famine and at length agreed to pay the barbarians 1,000 pounds of gold, on condition of their quitting the city and its territory. Brennus brought false weights, and, when the Romans exclaimed against this injustice, the Gallic chief threw his sword also into the scale, crying, Woe to the vanquished! But at this very moment Candelus marched into the forum, ordered the gold to be taken away, and drove the Gauls out of the city. Another battle was fought on the road to Gabii, in which the Gauls were completely destroyed and their leader Brennus taken prisoner. This tale, however, is an invention of Roman vanity. We learn from other sources that the Gauls retreated because their settlements in northern Italy were attacked by the Venetians, and there can be little doubt that their departure was hastened by a present of Roman gold. The Gauls frequently repeated their inroads, and for many years to come were the constant dread of the Romans. When the Romans returned to the heap of ruins which was once their city their hearts sank within them. The people shrank from the expense and toil of rebuilding their houses, and loudly demanded that they should all remove to Vi, where the private dwellings and public buildings were still standing, but Candelus and the patricians strongly urged them not to abandon the homes of their fathers, and they were at length persuaded to remain. The state granted bricks, and stones were fetched from Vi. Within a year the city rose from its ashes, but the streets were narrow and crooked, the houses were frequently built over the sewers, and the city continued to show, down to the great fire of Nero, evident traces of the haste and irregularity with which it had been rebuilt. Rome was now deprived of almost all her subjects, and her territory was reduced to nearly its original limits. The Latins and Hernicans dissolved the league with the Romans, and wars broke out on every side. In these difficulties and dangers Candelus was the soul of the Republic. Again and again he led the Roman legions against their enemies, and always with success. The rapidity with which the Romans recovered their power after so terrible a disaster would seem unaccountable but for the fact that the other nations had also suffered greatly from the inroads of the Gauls, who still continued to ravage central Italy. Two of their invasions of the Roman territory are commemorated by celebrated legends.
which may be related here, though they belong to a later period. In BC 361 the Gauls and Romans were encamped on either bank of the Arno. A gigantic Gaul stepped forth from the ranks and insultingly challenged a Roman knight. T. Manlis, a Roman youth, obtained permission from his general to accept the challenge, slew the giant, and took from the dead body the golden chain torques which the barbarian wore around his neck. His comrades gave him the surname of Torquitus, which he handed down to his descendants. In B.C. 349 another distinguished Roman family earned its surname from a single combat with a Gaul. Here again a Gallic warrior of gigantic size challenged any one of the Romans to single combat. His challenge was accepted by Anvilaris, upon whose helmet a raven perched, and as they thought, the bird flew into the face of the Gaul, striking at him with its beak and flapping his wings. Thus Valeris slew the Gaul, and was called in consequence, Corvus, or the, Raven. It is now necessary to revert to the internal history of Rome. Great suffering and discontent prevailed, returning to ruined homes and ravaged lands. The poor citizens had been obliged to borrow money to rebuild their houses and cultivate their farms. The law of debtor and creditor at Rome, as we have already seen, was very severe, and many unfortunate debtors were carried away to bondage. Under these circumstances, Emmanuel, the preserver of the capital, came forward as the patron of the poor. This distinguished man had been bitterly disappointed in his claims to honor and gratitude, while Candelus, his personal enemy, who had shared in none of the dangers of the siege, was repeatedly raised to the highest honors of the state. He, who had saved the capital, was left to languish in a private station, neglected by his own order. Manley's turn to the plebeians. One day he recognized in the form a soldier who had served with him in the field, and whom a creditor was carrying away in fetters. Manley's paid his debt upon the spot, and swore that, as long as he had a single pound, he would not allow any Roman to be imprisoned for debt. He sold a large part of his property, and applied the proceeds to the liberation of his fellow citizens from bondage. Supported now by the plebeians, he came forward as the accuser of his own order and charged them with appropriating to their own use the gold which had been raised to a ransom the city from the Gauls. The patricians in return accused him, as they had accused Espy, Cassius, of aspiring to the tyranny, when he was brought to trial before the commission of the centuries in the Campus Martis. He proudly showed the spoils of thirty warriors whom he had slain, the forty military distinctions which he had won in battle, and the innumerable scars upon his breast and then turning toward the capital he prayed the immortal gods to remember the man who had saved their temples from destruction. After such an appeal, his condemnation was impossible, and his enemies therefore contrived to break up the assembly. Shortly afterward he was arraigned on the same charges before the commission of the Curies in the Peline Grove. Here he was at once condemned, and was hurled from the Tarpeian Rock. His house, which was on the capital, was raised to the ground B.C. 384. The death of Manlis, however, was only a temporary check to the plebeian cause. A few years afterward the contest came to a crisis. In B.C. 376 Silicines Stolo and his kinsman L. Sextius, being tribunes of the plebs, determined to give the plebeians an equal share in the political power, to deprive the patricians of the exclusive use of the public land, and to remove the present distress of the plebeians. For this purpose they brought forward three laws which are celebrated in history under the name of the Elysianae inrogations. These were, I that in future consuls, and not military tribunes, should be appointed, and that one of the two consuls must be a plebeian, I I, 
that no citizen should possess more than 500 jugar of the public land, nor should feed upon the public pastures more than 100 head of large and 500 of small cattle, under penalty of a heavy fine, iii, that the interest already paid for borrowed money should be deducted from the principal, and that the remainder should be repaid in three yearly installments. These great reforms naturally excited the most violent opposition, and the patricians induced some of the plebeians to put their veto upon the measures of their colleagues, but Licinius and Sextius were not to be baffled in this way, and they exercised their veto by preventing the commission of the centuries from electing any magistrates for the next year, hence no consuls, military tribunes, censors, or quaestors could be appointed, and the tribunes of the plebs and the ediles who were elected by the commission of the tribes, were the only magistrates in the state. For five years did the state of things continue. Silicines and El Sextius were re-elected annually, and prevented the commission of the centuries from appointing any magistrates. At the end of this time they allowed military tribunes to be chosen in consequence of a war with the Latins, but so far were they from yielding any of their demands, that to their former allegations they now added another, that the care of the Sibylline books instead of being entrusted to two men duumviri, both patricians, should be given to ten men decemviri, half of whom should be plebeians. Five years more did the struggle last, but the firmness of the tribunes at length prevailed. In B.C. 367 the Lycidian rogations were passed, and L. Sextius was elected the first plebeian consul for the next year, but the patricians made one last effort to evade the law. By the Roman constitution, the consuls, after being elected by the Comitia Centuriata, received the Imperium, or sovereign power, from the Comitia Curiata. The patricians thus had it in their power to nullify the election of the centuries by refusing the Imperium. This they did when El Sextius was elected consul, and they made Camillus, the great champion of their order, dictator, to support them in their new struggle. But the old hero saw that it was too late, and determined to bring about a reconciliation between the two orders. A compromise was effected. The Imperium was conferred upon El Sextius, but the judicial duties were taken away from the consuls, and given to a new magistrate called Praetor. Camillus vowed to the goddess Concord a temple for his success. The long struggle between the patricians and plebeians was thus brought to a virtual close. The patricians still clung obstinately to the exclusive privileges which they still possessed, but when the plebeians had once obtained a share in the consulship, it was evident that their participation in the other offices of the state could not be much longer delayed. We may therefore anticipate the course of events by narrating in this place that the first plebeian dictator was C. Marcius Rutilis in B.C. 356, that the same man was the first plebeian censor five years afterward B.C. 351, that the praetorship was thrown open to the plebeians in B.C. 336, and that the Lexogomia in B.C. 300 which increased the number of the pontiffs from four to eight, and that of the augurs from four to nine, also enacted that four of the pontiffs and five of the augurs should be taken from the plebeians. About thirty years after the Licinian rogations, another important reform, which abridged still farther the privileges of the patricians, was effected by the Publiaean laws, proposed by the dictator Q. Publilius Philo in B.C. 339. These were, I that the resolutions of the plebs should be binding on all the choirites, thus giving to the plebiscite a passade at the commission of the tribes the same force as the laws passade at the commission of the centuries. I, I that all laws passade at the commission of the centuries should receive previously the sanction of the curies, so that the curies were now deprived of all power over the centuries. I, I, I 
that one of the censors must be a plebeian. The first of these laws seems to be little move than a reenactment of one of the Valerian and Horatian laws, passed after the expulsion of the Decembers, but it is probable that the latter had never been really carried into effect. Even the Publilian law upon this subject seems to have been evaded, and it was accordingly enacted again by the dictator Q. Hortensis in B.C. 286. In this year the last secession of the plebeians took place, and the Lex H.O.R.D.N.S.I.A. is always mentioned as the law which gave to plebiscite a passage at the commission of the tribes the full power of laws binding upon the whole nation. From this time we hear of no more civil dissensions till the times of the Gracchi, a hundred and fifty years afterward and the Lex Hortensia may therefore be regarded as the termination of the long struggle between the two orders. Footnote 20, Arogadio differed from Alex, as a bill from an act of parliament. Arogadio was a law submitted to the assembly of the people, and only became Alex when enacted by them. Chapter VIII, from the Elysianiae and Rogations to the end of the Asaemanidae Wars, B.C. 367-290, United at Home. The Romans were now prepared to carry on their foreign wars with more vigor, and their conquests of the Samnites and Latins made them the virtual masters of Italy. But the years which immediately followed the Licinian laws were times of great suffering. A pestilence raged in Rome, which carried off many of the most distinguished men, and among others the aged Camillus B.C. 362. The Tiber overflowed its banks, the city was shaken by earthquakes, and a yawning chasm opened in the Forum. The soothsayers declared that the gulf could never be filled up except by throwing into it that which Rome held most valuable. The tale runs that, when everyone was doubting what the gods could mean, a noble youth named Amphartes came forward, and, declaring that Rome possessed nothing so valuable as her brave citizens, mounted his steed and leaped into the abyss in full armor, whereupon the earth closed over him. This event is assigned to the year 362 BC. During the next few years the Gauls renewed their inroads, of which we have already spoken, and in the course of which Manley's Torquitus and Valerius Corvus gained such glory, the Romans steadily extended their dominion over the southern part of Etruria and the country of the Volscians, and the alliance with the Latins was renewed. Fifty years had elapsed since the capture of the city by the Gauls, and Rome was now strong enough to enter into a contest with the most formidable enemy which her arms had yet encountered. The Asaemanides were at the height of their power, and the contest between them and the Romans was virtually for the supremacy of Italy. The Samnites, as we have already seen, were a people of Sabine origin, and had emigrated to the country which they inhabited at a comparatively late period. They consisted of four different tribes or cantons, the Pentri, Herpini, Caracini, and Caudini, of whom the two former were the most important. They inhabited that part of the Apennines which lies between Campania and Lucania, but they were not contented with their mountain homes, and overran the rich plains which lay at their feet. They became the masters of Campania and Lucania, and spread themselves almost to the southern extremity of Italy. But the Samnites of Campania and Lucania had in course of time broken off all connection with the parent nation, and sometimes were engaged in hostilities with the latter. It was a contest of this kind that led to the war between the Romans and the Samnites of the Apennines. On the borders of Campania and Samnium dwelt a people, called the Sidicini, who had hitherto preserved their independence, being attacked by the Samnites. This people implored the assistance of the Campanians, which was readily granted. Thereupon the Samnites turned their arms against the Campanians, and, after occupying Mount Tithata, which overlooks the city of Capua, they descended into the plain 
and defeated the Campanians in a pitched battle at the very gates of Capua. The Campanians, being shut up within the city, now applied for assistance to Rome, and offered to place Capua in their hands. The Romans had only a few years previously concluded in alliance with the Samnites, but the bait of the richest city and the most fertile soil in Italy was irresistible, and they resolved to comply with the request. Thus began the Samnite Wars, which, with a few intervals of peace, lasted 53 years. First Samnite War, B.C. 343-341. The Romans commenced the war by sending two consular armies against the Samnites, and the first battle between the rival nations was fought at the foot of Mount Naurus, which lies about three miles from Kumi. The Samnites were defeated with great loss, and it has been justly remarked that this battle may be regarded as one of the most memorable in history, since it was a kind of omen of the ultimate issue of the great contest which had now begun between the Samnites and Romans for the sovereignty of Italy. The Romans came to other decisive victories, and both consuls entered the city in triumph, but two causes prevented the Romans from prosecuting their success. In the first place, the Roman army, which had been wintering in Capua, rose in open mutiny, and the poorer plebeians in the city, who were oppressed by debt, left Rome and joined the mutineers. In the second place, the increasing disaffection of the Latins warned the Romans to husband their resources for another and more terrible struggle. The Romans, therefore, abandoning the Sidicini and Campanians, concluded a treaty of peace and alliance with the Samnites in B.C. 341, so that in the Great Latin War, which broke out in the following year, the Samnites fought on the side of the Romans. The Latin War, B.C. 340-338. The Latins had, as already stated, renewed their league with Rome in B.C. 356, and consequently their troops had fought along with the Romans in the war against the Samnites. But the increasing power of Rome excited their alarm, and it became evident to them that, though nominally on a footing of equality, they were, in reality, becoming subject to Rome. This feeling was confirmed by the treaty of alliance which the Romans had formed with the Samnites. The Latins, therefore, determined to bring matters to a crisis, and sent two praetors, who were their chief magistrates, to propose to the Romans that the two nations should henceforth form one state, that half of the state should consist of Latins, and that one of the two consuls should be chosen from Latium. These requests excited the greatest indignation at Rome, and were rejected with the utmost scorn. The Senate met in the Temple of Jupiter, in the capital, to receive the Latin deputation, and, after hearing their proposals, the consul, T. Manlis Torquitus, the same who had slain the Gaul in single combat, declared that, if the Republic should cowardly yield to these demands, he would come into the Senate House sword in hand and cut down the first Latin he saw there. The tale goes on to say that in the discussion which followed, when both parties were excited by anger, the Latin creator defied the Roman Jupiter that thereupon an awful peal of thunder shook the building, and that, as the impious man hurried down the steps from the temple, he fell from top to bottom, and lay there a corpse. War was now declared, and the most vigorous efforts were made on both sides. The contest was to decide whether Rome should become a Latin town, or the Latins be subject to Rome. The Romans had elected to the consulship two of their most distinguished men. The patrician consul was, as already mentioned, T. Manley's Torquitus. His plebeian colleague was P. Deceased Muse, who had gained great renown in the recent war against the Samnites. The two consuls marched through Samnium into Campania, and threatened Capua, thus leaving Rome exposed to the attacks of the Latins. But the consuls foresaw that the Latins would not abandon Capua, 
their great acquisition, and the event proved their wisdom. The contest was thus withdrawn from the territory of Rome and transferred to Campania, where the Romans could receive assistance from the neighboring country of their Samnite allies. It was at the foot of Mount Vesuvius that the two armies met, and here the battle was fought which decided the contest. It was like a civil war. The soldiers of the two armies spoke the same language, had fought by each other's sides, and were well known to one another. Under these circumstances, the consuls published a proclamation that no Roman should engage in single combat with a Latin on pain of death. But the son of Torquatus, provoked by the insults of a Tusculan officer, accepted his challenge, slew his adversary, and carried the bloody spoils in triumph to his father. The consul had within him the heart of Brutus, he would not pardon this breach of discipline, and ordered the unhappy youth to be beheaded by the lictor in the presence of the assembled army. In the night before the battle a vision appeared to each consul, announcing that the general of one side and the army of the other were doomed to destruction. Both agreed that the one whose wing first began to waver should devote himself and the army of the enemy to the gods of the lower world. Deceased commanded the left wing, and when it began to give way, he resolved to fulfill his vow, calling the Pontifex Maximus. He repeated after him the form of words by which he devoted himself and the army of the enemy to the gods of the dead and the mother earth, then leaping upon his horse, he rushed into the thickest of the fight, and was slain. The Romans gained a signal victory. Scarcely a fourth part of the Latins escaped BC 340. This victory made the Romans masters of Campania, and the Latins did not dare to meet them again in the field. The war continued two years longer each city confining itself to the defense of its own walls, and hoping to receive help from others in case of an attack. But upon the capture of Cadon in B.C. 338 all the Latins laid down their arms, and garrisons were placed in their towns. The Romans were now absolute masters of Latium, and their great object was to prevent the Latin cities from forming any union again. For this purpose not only were all general assemblies forbidden, but, in order to keep the cities completely isolated, the citizens of one town could not marry or make a legal contract of bargain or sale with another. Tiber and Prenest, the two most powerful cities of the League, which had taken the most active part in the war, were deprived of a portion of their land, but were allowed to array, 